a man tucks his daughter in for the very last time. So it seems. Another man discovers something about his job that has him doing a double take. At mushrooms, no less. And when one's mind is the prison, it takes another whose love can free them from the outside. Welcome, listeners, to your three no-sleeps for today. In order and with author, Daddy by Johnny Bug. I love my new job, but I don't understand the mandatory popsicles by Batauto. And lastly, What I Cannot Know by D.A. Williams. So, turn the lights off, the sound up, and get ready for a unique set of No Sleep Tales just for your ears. Let's do this. Daddy. I cradle her close to my chest as I lift her little frame from the sofa. It's well past midnight, and I should have done this long ago. It's time to take her to bed. She stirs as I raise her into my arms. Her gentle blue eyes part ever so slowly as she takes in the room and the situation. Hey, honey. Time for bed now, don't worry. Daddy's got you. I bring her in tight so I don't lose my grip on her. I feel her little body relax in my arms as she waffles between awake and sleep. I move tenderly and speak as soft as I can, so not to rouse her. As I said, it is well beyond the time to have done this. We've been on that couch watching old movies since six when I got home from work. She really liked the classic Disney movies I love. Robin Hood, Winnie the Pooh, she even shed a little tear during Hercules. I think she liked the same movies as me because these old favourites of mine put me at ease, and therefore put her at ease too. It only makes sense if her dad's relaxed, so is she. I glance to the living room before ascending the stairs. It's littered with snack wrappers, popcorn, soda cans, juice boxes, beer cans, and some plates with some fish fingers still on them. Half-eaten, tartar sauce glazing over from when I plated it hours ago. She was all ready for our little movie night when I got home, dressed in her little PJs, an oversized t-shirt of mine, and her little polka dot pants that I don't even remember buying. She practically barraged me with requests as soon as I got home from work. It completely caught me off guard, seeing as she's been so quiet and so dour these last few days. Daddy, can we watch movies tonight? Daddy, can we have fish sticks tonight? Daddy, I want some soda, please. Her energy was so bombastic, I could tell she must have been looking forward to this for some time. After I recovered from that assault of questions, I promised her we'd have a nice night together. I began making my way upstairs, careful not to wake the little girl. We make it to my room and I flick the bedside lamp on, laying her down on my pillows. She asks a murmured question. Daddy, can you tell me a bedtime story? Her sudden words startle me. I'm sorry, honey. Daddy doesn't have any storybooks in the house. I pull up the blankets over her 
and begin tucking them around her tightly. Please, Daddy, even if it's just made up. I hold her little cheek in my hand, hoping my trembling isn't noticeable. I'm sorry, honey. Daddy has some important grown-up work to do. I can't tonight. I lean in and give her a little kiss on her icy forehead. Just try to get some sleep, baby. Okay, could you leave the lights on tonight? She rolls over and snuggles into the blankets. Of course, sweetie. I leave the lamp and the little girl and gently close the door. Stealthily, I make my way to the garage. I take some chains and a padlock along with my nail gun. I bolt the door shut. Thankfully, the room has no windows, so I don't have to worry about that. I chain the door to the wall and lock it up tight. She can't get out now. I scramble breathlessly into my car. The stove should be filling the house with gas right now. I crank the engine. The candle I left at the door will only buy me a few minutes. The car roars out of the driveway, and I'm well down the boulevard before I see it. An orange flash behind me, well into the horizon. I made it. She can't follow me now. Please, don't judge me too harshly. You don't understand. You can't understand. It's been going on for days now. Silently watching from every corner of my vision. This might be the only way to escape. I laugh like a madman. I think I got away. I'm practically raving in my car by the time I get on the highway. Then we pass the first lamppost. I dare not look into the passenger seat. I can see her little figure there. Only now it looks like it did before. Blackened and muddy. My heart is in my throat. My car is roaring down the freeway. Daddy? Please, don't judge me. Why did you do that? You don't understand. Where are we going? You can't understand. Are we going somewhere fun? I turn the wheel towards the guardrail. I don't have a daughter. I love my job, but I don't understand the mandatory popsicles. For the past month, I've been working at this new place downtown. I sit at a desk all day and enter numbers into an Excel spreadsheet. It is mind-numbing, repetitive, and antisocial. I love it. I have a spacious cubicle, my own computer, and a chair with a lumbar support. Best of all is all the lax working environment. As long as you meet your quota each day, management takes a hand-off approach. However, there is one rule they rigorously enforce. At the beginning of each workday, every employee is required to gather in the boardroom and eat a popsicle. They offer a simple spread of cherry, grape, and mango. For the diabetic staff members, they have a sugar-free alternative. They taste and feel like normal popsicles, but every time I peel back the wrapper and take the first lick, I feel at my core that something is intrinsically wrong about the whole thing. I don't want it to sound as though I don't like popsicles. I think they are fantastic, 
They taste good, are super refreshing, and take about 5 minutes to consume. At first, I felt uncomfortable standing in a cramped boardroom with about two dozen other people eating a frozen treat. After a couple of weeks, I got used to it. But I still could not shake the feeling that it was an incredibly eccentric workplace policy to make popsicle eating a mandatory part of the job. The only time I really interacted with my manager was during the daily popsicle meetings. He's always ensured I had my name checked off on the sign-in sheet. He collected our wrappers in an outstretched garbage bag. This has been the routine every single morning since I started, until yesterday. I was running late and I missed the popsicle meeting. I was hoping that if I snuck in, I could avoid an awkward interrogation by the manager. I darted out of the elevator as soon as it opened, and I ducked my head down so no one would see me enter. Ahead of me, the office was filled with the chaotic milling of over a dozen unfamiliar men. They all wore red doctor's scrubs and had surgical masks that obscured their faces. I watched, bewildered, as they walked in and out of my co-workers' cubicles, dragging behind them trays of unfamiliar equipment. I heard them mumble to each other in an Eastern European language I could not understand. I advanced slowly towards my desk, keeping an eye on the intruders. I glanced into the nearby cubicles. I noticed that none of my co-workers seemed to pay these red-clothed men any attention at all. Completely oblivious! They continued, tapping away on their keyboards. I arrived at my cubicle and found that one of the strange men awaited me. He was on his knees, tinkering with arcane-looking tools. Sprouting in front of him was something that resembled a waist-high red mushroom. I saw copper piping sticking out of this strange fungus and snake its way into the back of my computer seat. What the hell is that thing? I asked. I saw the man in red suddenly bolt alert. He stopped what he was doing and whispered something into his wrist. Five seconds later, my manager leaned into my cubicle. He has a raging grin and holds a wrapped popsicle in his hand. Hey, guy! We missed you this morning! But don't worry, I put one aside for when you came in. He passed it to me and waited expectantly. Thanks, I said, removing the wrapper and placing the frozen tip to my tongue. No problem. He watched me lick the popsicle down to the stick, before shooting me a pair of finger guns and retreating back to his office. I turned around to examine the weird mushroom behind me. It was gone, along with the man in the red scrubs. I stood up and scanned the office. All the strangers and all of their curious pieces of equipment had vanished. I sat back down on my computer chair to collect myself. There was no way that all those men could evacuate the office so quickly, especially not with all their tools. I must be going crazy. I loaded up Excel and went to work. I didn't see the men in red scrubs or the odd mushrooms for the rest of the day. Throughout the day, I could not escape the feeling that I discovered some forbidden secret. I kept returning to one revelation. All the strangeness disappeared the moment I licked the popsicle. Could there be a connection? Maybe there's some medicinal ingredient in the popsicles that's messing with my brain chemistry. But why would my employer do that? I came up with a few possible explanations. First, Maybe the company is drugging us with performance-enhancing drugs to improve productivity, sort of like fighter pilots. Since I missed my morning dosage, maybe I was experiencing the symptoms of withdrawal. 
In that case, the men in red and the giant mushroom were nothing but a visual hallucination. But I never saw anything like that on my popsicle-free weekends. So there goes that theory. Another option was that Excel was warping my brain. The men in the red scrubs then would be an expression of neurological damage. The best explanation was that maybe the popsicles prevented me from seeing something. Instead of blocking out pain, they inhibited the brain's ability to process certain images. That would mean that the strangers have always been there, lurking invisibly all around us. I haven't seen them until today. I have been consistent with my morning licks. No matter the explanation, I vowed I would never eat another popsicle. Unfortunately, that put me in a major dilemma. My job depended upon my consumption of the frozen snack. Despite its eccentricities, I really wanted to keep my job. I needed a strategy that I could get past the scrutiny of my manager. So I devised a plan. Just before the popsicle meeting, I would store an unwrapped condom in my cheek. When the time came to consume the popsicle, I would use the condom to act as a barrier between the frozen treat and my mouth. That way, the poison my employer was supplying would not enter my system. Additionally, I would keep a plastic bag in the collar of my shirt that would allow me to spit out the excess liquid. This morning, I tried out my plan. The manager smiled at me and nodded as I entered the boardroom. I already had the condom in my mouth. I picked up a cherry-flavored popsicle and retreated to my corner. This was the moment of truth. I unwrapped the popsicle, tongued my mouth condom into position, and slowly slid the frozen treat into the rubber sheath. And I started choking uncontrollably. Part of the condom dipped past the back of my throat, triggering my highly sensitive gag reflex. I realized too late that I should have taken this weakness into consideration before enacting this plan. Everyone in the boardroom stared at this spectacle. I coughed so hard, my eyes watered. I gave up and noiselessly regurgitated the condom-wrapped popsicle into my hand. Absolute silence followed. I felt someone behind me breathe heavily into my ear. I knew it was one of the men in the red scrubs. I turned around and no one was there. Moments later, the manager took me into his office. The HR rep followed shortly after. They terminated my employment. Apparently, since I was still in my probationary period, they had no problem releasing me. It seems they got the impression that I have a perverse sense of humor. They said my behavior was unbecoming in a professional environment. They said the popsicle meetings were meant to be a cheap and effective way to engender office-wide camaraderie. They emphasized it was not an opportunity for a badly timed fellatio joke. I mentioned the men in red and the tubes in the mushrooms. My manager then said, they aren't really a problem as long as you eat your popsicles. What I Cannot Know It is 1918. Four miles from here, at the front, a fragment of German shell strikes a rock. It ricochets with such force that it cuts entirely through one man's stomach and another man's arm. By then, 
it has lost enough momentum that when it strikes the third man in the jaw, it lodges there. The first man is dead. The other two will be arriving soon. But when I tell Seamus this, he doesn't believe me. <laughs> you cannot know that. He says, he's right. I cannot know it, and yet I do. When two men are evacuated back to our operating hospital some hours later, one missing an arm, and the other with a shard of metal stuck fast in the bone below his left ear. Seamus doesn't look at me in wonderment. Indeed, it seems, he does not even remember what I told him. Edith, he says, pointing to the man with shrapnel in his jaw. This one. Putting the anesthetic mask over his face is difficult. The metal is in the way. The other soldier mutters to himself across the room, gesturing with what remains of his arm. He is stable but shell-shocked. I hear the words, guts and spill, and cannot bear to listen more closely. The man below me on the table isn't able to speak, but he is crying. His sobs are guttural and wet. The bubbles of spittle that escape from between his lips are tinged pink. Don't be afraid. I tell him, my voice is soft as I watch the steady drop, drop, drop of the chloroform onto the mask. I won't let it hurt. His eyes are wet with tears. I see in them everything we all want. To be warm. To be safe. To be home. I count backwards from ten. And he blinks in time with me. Ten. Nine. Eight. And his eyelids begin to slow. Seven. Six. Five. And they are out of sync with my count. Four. Three. Two, one, and they stay closed. I switch the chloroform mask for the other, and Seamus begins to work on him. At the convalescence tent, another man has just been told that he will be sent back to the front tomorrow. It is another thing that I cannot know, but I do. Ida is the nurse on rounds in convalescence, and that is how I know, because Ida has told me, or rather, she will tell me tonight, through her tears. Take his pistol away! I know I say the words aloud, but Seamus doesn't seem to hear me. It doesn't matter. The words are not meant for him. I don't know for whom they are meant. The man tells Ida he is going for a walk. He thanks her for taking such good care of him. She watches him as she goes. Take his pistol away! Take his pistol away! I am shouting it now, but no one reacts. No one responds. There is no hope for that, I realize. I turn to Seamus instead. You must hold steady, I tell him. No matter what, hold steady. I know he must hear me, for he is nodding his head. But he looks as though he doesn't understand the words I am saying. His eyes are fixed on his work. I hear the scuff of boots just outside the canvas walls of our hospital. The other puddles on the cloth of the mask. I want to run to the man outside, to stop him, but I cannot bring myself to move. Hold steady, Seamus. Please hold steady. But it's no use. The report is loud and close, and Seamus starts. And suddenly, there is a gout of blood across my chest, and I am only just able to turn my head quick enough to keep it from getting in my eyes. God damn it! 
Seamus tries to clamp on the severed artery, but the shell fragment has completely bisected it. It is already too late, and I know this even though I shouldn't. And the blood slows, and the ether drips, until the last. And at least, at least I was able to do that. At least it did not hurt. And outside, Ida is screaming, because she's never seen a man shoot himself, and she did not know. How could she have known that he was going to do it? No one could have known, except I did. I knew, and I could do nothing to stop it. Later, when chaos has abated for a moment, I bring Seamus the strongest cup of tea I can make. He has been crying, but he tries not to let me see. There is blood under his nails, and mine as well. We met here, at this field hospital. What feels like many years ago already. When he is sure no one is looking, Seamus kisses my hand. Doctors should not fraternize with their nurses, and mother and father would hardly approve. But I am long past caring. I let my fingers stay twined with his. Seamus and I do not know each other. Not really. We only know what war has made of us, but someday when this ends, we want to change that. He wants to take me to Blarney, lays us on the grass, gets us in the family way, then leaves us on our ass right away, right away, right away, Salonika. I don't know that song. He wants to take me to Blarney Castle to kiss the stone. Although I don't know what it would do for you. He says, since you already speak so prettily. But we'll never see Blarney. Not together. He'll be gone before the war is over. I don't know that. I can't know that. But he will be. He will go starving for air. His fingertips blue. His face. I don't want to think about that. I squeeze his hands tighter in my own. And he is warm and alive. I do not know that he will die here. I refuse to know it. You haven't heard that song yet? He says, and I realize I have been humming the tune about Salinica. He's right. The women are singing it now in Cork. But I can't know that. I won't know that until after the war is over. When I go there to find his mother, to tell her how brave her son was, to tell her where he is buried. Stop it, Edith. Seamus looks me in the face, and his eyes are dark. Have they always been so? Something much worse is coming. It comes on a stretcher from the front. They carry him into a hospital, and he is death. I see his face, and it is only a skull, grinning with the promise of taking from me everything I love. His bones rattle beneath the cloth of his uniform, and they tell me that the sound is the rails of a cough. He's been gassed, they say, but they are wrong. He's not been gassed. He's sick. Don't bring him in here. Take him over there. Over there. I gesture frantically to the hospital tent, designated for the sick, but they do not see me point. They do not hear my words. It will not matter, anyway. A barrier of cloth and a few hundred meters cannot keep death from us. He will reach the sick tent in due time, 
and the convalescence ward, and the quarters for the doctors and nurses, he will reach them all in time. But first, he will come for the operation hospital. First, he will come for us. His flesh reforms before my eyes, and he is suddenly only a boy. He heaves for breath, eyes burning with fever. A dusky hue has already spread over his cheeks. He reaches for my hand with his grey fingertips. He coughs, a jet of frothy, milky blood bubbling over his lips and out of his nose. I take his hand. I cannot do otherwise. Even death is afraid of what he brings to us. His right lung is filling with fluid. Lung damage is an effect of chlorine gas, but I know this is not from gas. But there is nothing I can say or do that will change what is about to happen. Seamus wants to drain the plural space to give the boy room to breathe. My hands shake as I administer the chloroform. For this I can know, and this I do know, anesthetic will not take if you cannot breathe it in. The boy flickers but refuses to fade fully under. His eyelids flutter but do not close. But Seamus will not wait any longer. He goes in. The skin parts easily and the muscle underneath. I am crying but again, I cannot move. Seamus, please don't. Please, please don't. He won't go under. He can't. The rib comes out slick with blood, and the lung underneath is heavy and dark. Under my shaking hands, beneath the mask, the boy groans in delirium and pain. Please, Seamus, I'm begging you. He can still move. He doesn't hear me. He never has. He never will. I cannot know that the boy will buck when the needle goes in, but I do. And the needle goes in and he does. He bucks and he coughs and the great pressure against his lung is released out into the air through the needle. The pus is thin and sanguineous and as it comes down on Seamus like rain, I know death has taken his hand as well. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm sobbing and it seems now that finally Seamus can hear me. He wipes his face with his sleeve, smearing the bloody fluid away from his eyes. I think he knows now that this is not gas. I think he has known all along, but he couldn't just let the boy die. Hold steady, Edith. We haven't lost him yet. And he's right. Despite all of it, the boy survives the surgery, and then he survives a single day more. Seamus survives Six. He clutches my hand and there is blood under his nails. He is sick, but he is only one of many. No one tries to drain their lungs. No one knows what to do. We give them whiskey and water and wrap them in blankets and wait for them to die. Seamus is dying now. He is drowning. His eyes bulge red. His nose has bled for hours. The pillow beneath his head is matted with clots. The skin across his chest and throat crackles with trapped pockets of air leaking from his heavy bloody lungs. His face is swollen and black. He coughs and seizes and his nails dig into my skin again. 
but I will not pull away. He cannot speak, but he's begging me to help him. There is nothing I can do. When it is finally over, his hand is still in mine, and he is warm but not alive. Edith! 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 And his hand is still in mine, but then it is not his hand. It is a woman's hand. She is alive, and she is a few years younger than I am, and she looks like my sister. Marianne? But she is not my sister, Marianne, because Marianne died before the war even began, and she is not a few years younger than I am. She is many. The hand she holds in her own is small and wrinkled and old. My hand. No, Grandma Edith. It's me, Susanna. The Scotsman on the radio sings about a far-off place, and I think at first that it must be Salonica, but it is not. It is Italy. There is a photograph on the wall, and I am in it, but I am older. No, I am younger. I am in my wedding dress, and I am smiling, and the man next to me in his suit is not Seamus, because Seamus did not live long enough for us to go to Blarney. The man is... his name is... Robert. He is gentle and kind, and even when I thought I could never love again, I did learn to love him. Robert is gone now, too. I remember. But he was old and we had lived a good life, and it did not hurt. At least, it did not hurt. Did you go somewhere frightening again, Grandma Edith? I am crying. I have been crying. I am shaking. I was afraid, but now it is ceasing. I remember Susanna, too. I remember that I love her. I did, darling. I did. The voice cracked with age, but I know it's mine. Do I go there often? She nods and she looks so sad that my heart breaks for her, as hers does for mine. Don't worry. I'm back now, for a little while at least. Don't be sad. It is 1972. I am old, and my mind is going, and the only place it ever seems to go is back to that hell in 1918. I don't want to go there, but I do. And it is just as horrible as it was the first time and every time that I have relived it since then. But just as often, Susanna holds my hands and she brings me back where I belong. I want her to know how much this means to me, how much I love her, but she cannot know. She cannot know unless I tell her. And so I write this, and so I do. It is 1918, four miles from here at the front. A fragment of German shell strikes a rock, and I know this when I cannot know it. I know this just as I know the Spanish influenza is coming, and I know that it will claim Seamus just as it will claim millions of others. And I will try to change this when I know I cannot change it. And I know I am helpless, and I am afraid. But deep down in my heart, I now know this, too. That I will not have to be afraid for long. Because Susanna will take my hands and bring me back. And for a time, I will be safe and I will be warm. For a time, I will be home. I know this. And I will always know this, even when I cannot. 
I found this letter in one of my mum's old memory books. My great-grandma Edith wrote it for her. I never got to meet Edith. She passed away before I was born. Dementia. Mum's not doing so well right now either. Guess it just runs in our family. It'll probably come for me too. When it's time. But fortunately for Mum, she didn't live through the things Edith did. She doesn't have memories like that. The kind that can grab you from 50 years in the past and tear your soul up again and again. I don't either. And I hope I never do. But sometimes, looking at the world nowadays, I feel like we might be headed for times all too similar to what Edith saw. I decided to share this here because that thought scares me. I can tell you that. It scares the hell out of me. And I didn't want to be alone with it anymore. I guess it just serves as a reminder that sometimes the worst and scariest things, the things that leave us truly sleepless, are real. But maybe if we reach out, if you take my hands and I take yours, we can make it through okay. We can't know unless we try, right? Well, listeners, I hope you enjoyed these no-sleep tales. What to do when a spectral girl follows you for life. Sage? Exorcism? Maybe use mirrors for misdirection. How would you do it? And talk about having some hardcore popsicle magic to hide those mysterious red mushroom plumbers. And if my boss forced me to consume popsicles at work, well, <laughs> maybe that wouldn't be so bad, actually. <laughs> And what I cannot know, a heart-wrenching story about the past, the hauntings that it brings to one's mind, and the freedoms that love can bring to those trapped in the past. Just brilliant stories. Thank you to all the authors that allowed me to narrate their work. This Friday, folks, I'm going to throw a curveball your way, keeping it a little secret, as it were, regarding the story. And this episode will be dedicated to an Earl Grey Enforcer. So keep an ear out this Friday. If you want to be a supporter of the podcast yourself, visit www.patreon forward slash sfgt.com and bam, you can donate dollary dues to the podcast. Every dollar goes right back in to improving the podcast in many, many ways. Whether it's new gear, paying authors, or eventually starting up another spin-off series, I have only you, my supporters, to thank. So thanks, mate, just for listening. And as always, till next we meet.